Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about someone who anyone who has ever heard anything about the civil rights movement in the United States has probably heard one thing about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yes, this is kind of one of those quick encapsulation. People can spit out the name and sort of what it's associated with. Yes, Rosa Parks. Now you go. Montgomery bus boycott. Right. She refused to give up her seat one day uh, on the bus, and that spawned the Montgomery bus boycott, which in turn spawned the creation of the Montgomery Montgomery Improvement Association, of which Martin Luther King Jr. was elected as its first president. So this is sort of a keystone moment in the American civil rights movement. Consequently, Rosa is known as the mother of the civil rights movement. Um, but as with many of the most memorable historical stories, this sort of elementary school version that a lot of people know about how one day uh, Rosa didn't give up her seat on a segregated bus and then the boycott happened. Like, <laughs> it's, it's that's a really simplified version. It's of extremely it. oversimplified. And it... Uh, it misses a lot of the work that she did in her life. Um, yeah, she was way more than that one incident. She was basically amazing. Uh-huh. Uh And extremely, I mean, that one act of civil disobedience was a, a monumental act that was deeply important. But it was a tiny, tiny piece of this whole big story. So this that's why this episode blossomed into two parts. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, Rosa Parks' uh, early life. Uh, we're going to go up to the actual day on the bus. And then in part two, we will talk about the boycott and how that unfolded and what happened afterward and what her life was like after the boycott was over. And we're going to start with a little bit of background that we have learned is necessary um, in other times that we've talked about the civil rights movement in America. Basically, when we've done episodes that have touched on the civil rights movement, we've gotten um, quite a few messenger messages from listeners outside the United States who felt like they didn't have enough context to really understand what we were talking about um, and like didn't really have a sense of what segregation was all about and all of that kind of stuff. And in the United States, as we just referenced, schools have a pretty sanitized and oversimplified view of the movement and of the social conditions at the time. So in light of all that, we're going to have a very, very brief recap Yeah. Of this. So slavery was abolished in the United States in the early 1860s. However, a number of laws and social systems continued to really deliberately subjugate African-Americans, even though slavery was technically over. I'm using the air quotes all over the place here. Racism, discrimination and unequal treatment are still things that you will find today. They still exist. And some of the other things we're about to talk about also continue to happen. Uh, but the first 100 years that followed the end of the Civil War, a lot of this really unfair treatment was completely legal. It was, in fact, encouraged in many cases, and it was pretty much a constant in terms of the social picture. Yes. So the laws included, among many others, things like polling and election laws that were explicitly meant to keep African-Americans from voting. And there are also segregation laws known as Jim Crow laws, which separated white people from people of color and everything from schools to buses to restrooms. So the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of segregation in 1896, as long as these separate facilities were also equal. So in reality, 
the facilities that were marked colored were generally inferior than the ones for white people. And as we talked about in our uh, episode on Loving versus Virginia last year, that was actually a two-parter, regardless of their quality, the fact that these separate facilities even existed was inherently a form of discrimination. And the social part of this equation really wove its way through every facet of life. So we have just a couple of examples. Uh, there were businesses that would hire only African-Americans for service positions, which sort of maintained this atmosphere and a, a certainly a visual sense of slavery. Uh, black people were held to vastly different behavioral standards than white people, especially when speaking to Caucasians. African-Americans were expected always to be subservient and meek and never talk back or stand up for themselves. And those who broke these social rules really risked some horrible consequences. They could be beaten. Uh, they would certainly invite scorn and derision. And sometimes death. And sometimes it would get very, very violent and as Tracy said, end in their ending. Yes. Violence specifically by Caucasians against African-Americans was also just frequent and severe. And often authorities just chose not to investigate or prosecute what was going on. But on the other hand, African-Americans were frequently arrested, tried and convicted for crimes they absolutely did not commit at all. And sometimes which had not even happened. And there were times when there was not even an arrest or conviction. Uh, they didn't bother with the paperwork or the legalities. There would simply be a mob that took the law into its own hands and lynched someone for a crime which may or may not have happened, may have been entirely made up. And you told me about how postcards of such things were sold in stores until the 60s. Yeah, I um, I had a boss at one of my previous jobs in a library who had happened upon them at one point. I think in a book collection that we had acquired and they're, they're literally postcards of lynchings. They were horrifying and he kind of kept them in his desk. And when students, it was in a university library would be talking about it. And anytime they were like, it really wasn't that bad. Was it? He was always ready to pull those out and go, Oh, it's really that bad. Yes. Uh, Horrifying. Yes. So this was the most obvious and notorious in the American South especially in the states that had still allowed slavery at the start of the Civil War. But explicit racism and discrimination were really systemic, and they existed all over the country. It was not just, quote, a Southern problem. The Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacy organizations flourished throughout the country. So for total clarity... Ending segregation was an important part of the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement was not just about who sat in what seat on the bus. And for Rosa Parks, it wasn't just about not giving up her seat that one day. It was also a much bigger picture. It was a lifelong part of her. And uh, that's we're going to start with the early part of her life now. Rosa Parks was born Rosa McCauley, and she grew up in Alabama. And in her autobiography, she describes herself as having a sense of fairness from a very young age. And she also had, in her own words, quote, a life history of being rebellious. And during her childhood, she had several encounters in which she was threatened by a white person and actually stood up for herself in spite of all of the social expectations that she would do exactly not that. Uh, in one, a white boy threatened to punch her and she picked up a brick and threatened to hit him back, which is startling. Well, especially considered that she's portrayed as sort of this diminutive yeah. 
sweet lady. Yes, she always is characterized as being just this very gentle, kind, wonderful person, but... Which is also true. There was a spitfire in there that was not going to stand for unfair treatment. No. Uh, And in another instance, a white boy accused her and one of her friends of taking berries from the bushes outside his house. And she and her friend said, if you come over here, we'll give you a good beating, Uh, which is very brave. Yes. Uh, And there were many similar incidents throughout her childhood as well. So in all of these cases, when Rosa told an adult what had happened, she would be scolded for speaking that way to a white person. The adults in her life told her quite directly that she should never, ever defend herself or even raise her voice against a white person because of the very real risks that were involved. In the case of the berries, her aunt told her that if the white boy told anybody else about it, they could be lynched. And Rosa simply did not agree with this. And as she grew up uh, and got married, neither did her husband, Raymond Parks, who she met in the spring of 1931. They were married in December of 1932, and everyone referred to him as just Parks. Uh, and so for that reason, as we go forward telling the story, we will call him Parks and Rosa will go by the name of Rosa. I have this whole conversation with myself every time we talk about a person, uh-huh. about how to name that person in the episode. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we have Parks as Parks and Rose as Rosa. So Parks was an activist. When he met Rosa, he was working extensively on behalf of a group of people known as the Scottsboro Boys. These were nine black teenagers who had been falsely accused of the gang rape of two white women. This was an incident which had not even happened, and they had been sentenced to death. So this work was extremely dangerous because of the threat of retaliation and violence from the white community. So all of the meetings took place completely in secret. And Parks wouldn't even tell Rosa the names of the other men who were working with him because of the danger that was involved for all of them. So for many, many years before Rosa became an activist, she had been observing Parks' own political work. Uh, and he had not wanted her to be involved because his own involvement was so incredibly dangerous. And this was not, this was not like an exaggerated threat dangerous. No. Like activists' houses were bombed. Yeah. Frequently. So in 1943, Rosa joined the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. And this was an organization that started out um, to make sure that African Americans were getting the protections that were granted to them by the uh, the amendments to the Constitution that had followed the Civil War. So Parks had been a member when they had met, but eventually he'd become kind of disillusioned with the Montgomery chapter. At the time, it tended to exclude blue-collar members, and the most powerful African Americans in Montgomery were kind of reluctant to make waves because a lot of them had gotten to where they were by getting favors from the white communities. They sort of felt like trying to to go against that community would be biting the hand that fed them. Right. They didn't want to risk their own situation. Uh, but after seeing a picture of a former schoolmate at an NAACP meeting one day and realizing that they weren't for men only... Rosa decided to attend a meeting herself, and she wound up being the only woman at the meeting that night, and she was actually asked to take notes. Like, you're a lady, why don't you do secretary things? That That is a theme of her whole uh, adult life, actually. And this was also election day, so she actually was elected the group secretary. So she described herself as being too timid to say no that night. That if she'd been a little braver, she might have said that, you know, she declined the nomination. But this... 
sort of sparked a change in in her. She wound up working extensively with the NAACP for many, many years. She dedicated herself to grassroots organization and progress for African Americans. She attended leadership conferences and annual meetings. She chaired committees. She gave addresses at conferences, and she worked with other social movement organizations and uh, other organizations that were they're working towards some specific civil rights end as well, um, including the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, among others. And one of Rose's duties as secretary of the NAACP was to document crimes and discrimination against African Americans. She traveled to record the testimonies of black people who had been the victims of crimes on the part of white people, including beatings and gang rapes. And she also talked to the families of people who had been lynched. I can't imagine how difficult that had to have been at times. I know. Uh, she also looked for new homes and work in Montgomery when victims were facing retaliation in their own communities in the instances where they spoke up. And she advocated for African-Americans who were wrongfully imprisoned, as well as corresponding with them and offering aid and comfort when she could. Along with Parks, she worked extensively on getting African-Americans registered to vote. So today, in most places in the United States, you can register to vote by sending in a postcard. Yeah. (laughs) Or sometimes they have people like outside of stores or in other public areas. This is not how it was. No, it took some effort. Yes. So around this time, there were several thousand African-Americans living in Montgomery, Alabama, but only about 30 were registered to vote. And this is because for African-Americans in this part of the United States, registration was a huge tangle of bureaucracy and discrimination. Uh, Applications required people to identify their employers and their backgrounds. There were tests and poll taxes that were more difficult and more expensive for black people. And African-Americans uh, in Montgomery had to have a white person to vouch for them to be able to do it at all. And Rosa tried multiple times over the course of two years to register, and she was actually denied every time. And this continued until one attempt in which she wrote down all the questions on her reg- registration exam so she could file suit against the registration board. When the registrar caught on to what she was doing, she was finally told that she had passed the test. And then she was allowed to register. So in that instance, making waves kind of helped. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, Parks actually tried to register for many, many years, and he was told no over and over and over. Um, he did not. He was not registered to vote until they actually left Montgomery, way farther down the road in this story. Um, Rosa resigned her position as NAACP secretary in 1949 because her mother was ill. And although she scaled her work back with them at the time, she did continue to be active and she returned to the post in 1952 uh, when the Supreme Court verdict of Brown versus Board of Education overturned school segregation in 1954. She also worked on the integration of schools. Uh, and before we get to this next piece of her life, do you want to pause for a moment and share a word from our sponsor? Let's do that. All righty. All righty. Are you ready to talk about buses? Yes. So Rosa's famous refusal to give up her bus seat took place in 1955, but this was not the first time she had been removed from a Montgomery bus for breaking segregation rules. The first one was actually on her second attempt to register to vote. 
black people were supposed to board the bus at the front, pay their fare, and exit the bus, and then walk to the back door of the bus to get on so that they would not walk through the white people section at the front. This is just incredibly degrading. It's sort of ridiculous. Yes. So on that day, the back of the bus was just packed with people. Voter registration hours were just very limited, and they were extremely sporadic, and this was a deliberate attempt to discourage black people from registering. So as soon as a voter registration day would be announced, word would spread through the community, and the buses would fill up with people who were going to try to register. So rather than try to push her way through this crowd of people trying to register to vote, Rosa paid her fare and she walked straight back. And the driver demanded that she get off and enter her section of the bus through the back door, and she refused. And the driver actually grabbed her sleeve to pull her off of the bus. And I love the thing that she did next so much, which is that when she got to the front of the bus, she dropped her purse. And instead of bending it down to just pick it up, she sat on the front seat and then reached down and got it off the floor and then left the bus. It's kind of awesome. I love her. Yeah. Uh, Twelve years later, she was removed from another Montgomery bus in the act of civil disobedience that people know about because it in many ways catalyzed the civil rights movement. So by this point, the NAACP had been looking for a test case for getting bus segregation overturned for several years. Bus segregation was particularly demoralizing and degrading, even though lots and lots of places were segregated. The buses in particular, they were extra upsetting. Uh, more African-Americans than Caucasians rode the bus, so the black community made up the majority of the customers. And everyone was paying the same fare, but African-Americans were treated very badly, and they were often forced to give up their seats for white passengers. Over the years, many people had been arrested for violating segregation laws on Montgomery's buses. But for various reasons, none of them had worked out to be a good plaintiff in a test case. One in particular named Claudette Colvin had been considered until it was discovered that she was pregnant, which was problematic because she was an unmarried teenager. So Rosa knew all this. She was working with the NAACP at the time, but she wasn't trying to get herself arrested when she got on the bus that day. In fact, it was being driven by the same man who had taken her off the bus 12 years earlier. And she had, at that point, decided to never, ever get on one of his buses again. Uh, she didn't notice that he was the one behind the wheel when she was on her way home from work on December 1st, 1955. And once she made that connection, she had already paid her fare, so she stayed on board. At the next stop, white passengers boarded the bus and they filled the last of the seats in the white-only section up front. And the driver called back for people sitting in Rosa's row to give up their seats. Uh, if one white person was in a row, then there could be no black people in it, even if there were empty seats. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't enough for just the seat to be empty. It had to be the whole row. So at first, nobody moved. But then the three other people who were sitting in Rosa's row stood up and went to stand at the back. Rosa stayed where she was and she kind of moved her legs to let the man who was in the window seat get past her. She wrote in her autobiography, People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And when the driver saw that Rosa was still sitting there, he said he was going to have her arrested. And she answered, you may do that. 
I love her. I really do. Uh, she was taken into custody by two policemen and driven to City Hall, where she was jailed. And she was eventually allowed to make a phone call, and she called home to ask Parks to come bail her out. She really thought that it was going to take a long time because Parks did not have a car. He was going to have to, you know, either take a bus or, or ride along or walk a long way to get there. But word had already spread that she had been arrested, and a friend who'd heard about it went to the Parks home to give him a ride. E.D. Nixon was someone that Rosa and Parks had worked with for many years at the NAACP. And he got in touch with a lawyer named Clifford Durr and helped get Rosa out of jail. And the trial was set for the following Monday. At this point, E.D. Nixon, who he did a lot in Montgomery with the civil rights movement, he asked Rosa whether she would be willing to be the plaintiff in a test case to try to overturn bus segregation. He really thought she would be an ideal candidate. He had known her for years He considered her reputation and her demeanor to be impeccable. She was a devout Christian and a member of an African Methodist Episcopal church. She was also married and she had a job and there were no skeletons in her closet that were going to come out during a trial and, and throw everything off the rails. And so after talking it over with Parks and with her mother, Rosa agreed. And that is where we're going to pause the end of part one. Uh... I think I will read some listener mail before we sign off for this episode. That sounds like a capital idea. This one is from our listener, Amelia, and it is actually in reference to our Mendez versus Westminster episode, which was about the segregation of Mexican-American children in Southern California schools. Uh, so it's it fits a little with what we're talking about today. So Amelia says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I just listened to the Mendez versus Westminster podcast and was reminded of one of my favorite undergraduate history classes African-American history, 1865 to present, which covered many, many topics related to segregation, desegregation and legalized discrimination. It was the first class I took that required me to memorize Supreme Court cases. I was an art major before embracing history and getting a master's in it. At any rate, this podcast reminded me of one of the cases we had to memorize, Lum versus Rice. 1927, which clearly influenced Mendez versus Westminster and not in a good way. A Chinese-American father sued to have his daughter attend the local white school in Mississippi by the logic that since they weren't black, she shouldn't have to attend the black school, which was poorly funded. Unfortunately for the Lum family, they lost, with the court saying that since Martha Lum was not white, she couldn't attend the white school. I've always been curious about the background of the case and the family. She has in parentheses, how does a Chinese-American family end up in Mississippi in the 1920s? And what became of them? Perhaps a suggestion for a future podcast. Keep up the good work. Uh, And then she says that she listens to our podcast while rehabbing our home, and we've distracted her from the crummy jobs like pulling carpet staples from the wood floors and fixing window stashes. Oh, I hate pulling carpet staples. And I said window stashes when I should have said stashes. Thank you so much, Amelia. There were so many cases that were precursors to uh, Mendez versus Westminster that I kept having to, like, trim some of them out and and selectively figure out which ones to talk about cuz the, there were lots yeah i i know that myself i lose that sense of how many of these types of incidents were going on leading up to desegregation that there were lots of these little pockets of individuals that were trying to figure out the best way to you know raise their family and live their lives and they kind of get lost in the bigger picture kind of quick version that you often get. Yeah. Well, and that's a good segue to where we're going to leave off for our next episode, because one of the uh, 
one of the things before the civil rights movement was that there were a lot of people who were working on civil rights issues. Most of them before the Montgomery bus boycott did not think they were going to see a whole lot of action on it in their lifetimes. Um, so we will talk more about that in our next episode. If you would like to write to us on this or anything else, we're at history podcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash missed in history and on Twitter at missed in history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash missed in history. If you would like to learn more about this, you can come to our website and put the words Rosa Parks into our search bar and you will find our article on how the civil rights movement worked. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 